right, all right, good morning, everybody. Man, I, you know, normally I do not go, I do not participate in that. I do not go out on Black Friday, but this year I did go by the request of my wife and daughter. And so, yeah, I was there, all the pushing, all the shoving, and all I, all I want to tell you is, man, I, I hope I didn't hurt anybody. Right. Hey, good morning, guys. It is great to see you today. I'm so happy you're here as we launch into our new holiday series called Realistic Expectations. And I want to start off my message this morning. I have a question for you. And here's my question. Have you ever expected something in your life to go one way only to have it totally backfire on you? How many is that? How, how, how you you expected one thing, but it turned around and, and it turned out totally different than how you expected. Very common, right? It happens to all of us. I remember the very clearly the first time that really happened for me. I was in third grade, and I was in class one day. And when I showed up for for class in third grade, we had a substitute teacher. And you all know how it is with third graders and substitutes, right? Total battle for control. Well, in my head, I came up with this master plan. And it was, I got to tell you, it was brilliant. I had all these expectations. Like if I could pull off this plan, it would be amazing. Here's my plan. First, I recruit my little minion, Donnie, my good friend, Donnie. And I tell him my plan. He's all in. And here's our plan. When our substitute teacher takes the class out for recess, we're going to hide in the coat closet. And while they're all outside, we're going to go through everybody's desk. We're going to take all the pencils. We're going to steal the pencils. We're going to hide them because check this out. If there's no pencils, there's no writing. And if there's no writing, there's no schoolwork. And if there's no schoolwork, the class is happy, and I become the hero of third grade. (laughs) That was my master plan. Everything was in place, and so that's what happens. It's time for recess and all the hustle and bustle. Kids are going out. We hide in the coat closet. Everything's good to go. My plan's working brilliantly. The one thing I didn't count on was little Sarah Jones. What a snitch. (laughs) See, while Donnie was going through every desk stealing all the pencils, I was the lookout. I had the door, classroom door open this high. I was looking out out the thing, and I see the right down the hallway, I see the teacher out there watching the kids. I see little Sarah Jones pull on the teacher's coat. She bends down. Sarah whispers in her ear. Teacher looks straight down the hallway, grabs Sarah's hand. She starts walking very briskly toward the class. Man, I immediately jump in mission impossible mode. Okay, well, we got to figure this out. And I yelled at my friend Donnie, hey, the teacher's coming, the teacher's coming. Well, Donnie, he's not like, he's not a mastermind like I am. He panics. He runs up to me with all the pencils. Here! (laughs) Gives me the pencils. He jumps back in the closet and closes the door. Now, I'm so much smarter than Donnie, don't you know? And I realized, man, the first place that teacher's going to look is in the closet. So I make my grand escape plan. I look over at the window. Now, I don't know if you know what windows were like in your elementary school, but our windows looked something kind of like this. They were the little pool windows like that. 
So I climb up on the ledge. I start to back my way out the window. But because of that, le- because of the angle, man, that window just closes up on me. And half my body is outside the wall. The other half is stuck inside. And now I panic. Like, get me out. Get the teacher comes in. Now, this is amazing. She sees me in the window. She runs over to me and she starts pulling me out. I'm not kidding. Donnie opens the closet door. The teacher's back is to him. I see Donnie look at me and go. And he runs out to the playground. Now, it's a major ordeal to get me out of the window. I am majorly busted. I have to return all the pencils. And I don't know what they made you do when you got in trouble in third grade, but I had to write a hundred sentences on the blackboard. Sentences, I will not steal pencils and climb out school. No, wait, wait, that's not it. I think I, I, I had to write a hundred times, I will not mess with substitute teachers. <laughs> but needless to say, I expected one thing, and it didn't quite turn out like I expected, and I was majorly disappointed majorly disappointed. Now, you're sitting here this morning, and you're probably wondering, you know, why I'm sharing this silly story with you this morning. Well, because as as we kick off our new series called Realistic Expectations, and we have an outline prepared for you. It's a light green sheet found in your program. Let me encourage you to take this out and use it to follow along. All the verses from the Bible that we'll be looking at are printed there for you. It's a place to take some notes if that's helpful for you. And the reason I share that is because uh, here's the deal. We all live with expectations about life and relationships and work and faith and the way things should go, the way things we how we want things to go. And many times those expectations, to be honest, are just not realistic. And then we end up disappointed. Life doesn't measure up to what you thought it would be. In fact, on top of your outline, I gave you a great definition of disappointment, and I hope you'll write it down. It goes like this. Disappointment is the difference between what you expected, what you expected, and what really happens. Disappointment is the difference from what you expected and what really happens. And nowhere does this come into play more than in the holiday season. Because as we jump into Christmas, we're just filled with expectations, right? Expectations related to the festivities and family and relationships and church and gifts and God. And that's what I want us to start out with this morning, talking about realistic expectations of God. I want us to begin by looking at a very interesting passage from the book of Exodus. Now, in this passage, let me give you a little context. Moses is out tending his sheep. And while he's looking after his sheep, he looks up on the mountain. And on the mountain, he sees this burning bush, but the bush is not consumed. Moses says, that's a little strange. I better go check that out. Moses climbs up to the mountain where he meets with God. In fact, he encounters God. The first thing God says, Moses, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. Like Moses is in the very presence of God. And then God tells Moses, Moses, I've seen the suffering of my people. I have heard their cries. And on a side note, I just want to tell you this morning, 
true, still true to this day. God sees when you're suffering. God really hears your cries. And then God tells Moses, Moses, I am sending you to go set my people free. Well, can you imagine if that was you? I mean, just like you would be, Moses is overwhelmed by the whole situation. And he, he's, he has all these questions. And one of his questions for God is, God, if you, you send me to the people of Israel to tell them that, that God has sent me to deliver them from their suffering, they're going to ask me, which God are you talking about? He's basically asking God, God, what's your name? Who do I say sent me? And I want you to see God's response from Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 on your outline. This is what God says. It's how God answers. God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. This is my name forever. The, the, name, uh, the, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And I encourage you to underline the phrase, I am who I am. Now think about it, guys. It's kind of a strange name, isn't it? I mean, it's like, Mo, it's like God gave Moses his first name, but not his last name. Because when you say, I am, something's supposed to follow that, right? And I want to say, that's kind of the point. Do you know that God is so immense, so spectacular, so amazing that there is such a fullness to who God is that God cannot be captured in one name alone. God, God is so many wonderful things. And, and I think the rest of the Bible is basically filling in all the names of God. Now, our problem comes... When we start filling in the names of God based on our experiences, our expectations, rather than who he really is and what the Bible tells us about God. In fact, on your outline, what I want to do right here in the outline right now is I just want to give you some of the most common, unrealistic views of God that, that I know as you sit here today, many of you have them. I had them. Sometimes they still get mingled in a little bit. And I know that you have them too. So let's talk about them. The most common, unrealistic views of God. And the first one, would you write this down? That God is a genie. He's the give me God. That God exists to grant my wishes. Kind of makes me think of one of my all-time favorite Christmas stories. Two, two little boys, they, uh, the family goes to visit grandma for Christmas. And since grandma's there to babysit, the parents get a date night. And while the parents are out on their date night, grandma says to the two little boys, okay, boys, it's late. Go up, go up to bed, say your prayers, and go to sleep. And so one of the little boys, they go in the room. One boy kneels down. He starts praying, but he's praying at the top of his lungs. Dear Jesus, for Christmas, I want a PlayStation 4 and a skateboard and a new bike. And his brother jumped back and says, what? What are you doing? Why are you screaming? God, God's not deaf. And the little boy whispers. He says, I know, but grandma is. <laughs> you know, I tell that story because sometimes people, you know, they treat God that way. Like God exists to like a grandma almost like to give me stuff. And people have this view of God that, that works out fine until God doesn't come through. Like God, I, I, I want a bike or I want a job. Or I want a spouse. 
And as long as you get stuff, you and God are good. But when God doesn't come through, you end up disappointed. That's a common, unrealistic view that God's a genie. The next one, maybe you can relate to this one, that that God is a killjoy. A killjoy, meaning God doesn't want me to have any fun. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they got this, this view of God from a church experience that was so strict, so rigid, so legalistic, that it almost had this underlying communication that anything joyful and fun was kind of sinful, was kind of bad. I got to be honest, I had this view of God. For many years, it held me back from becoming a Christ follower because I thought, man, if I become a Christian, I can't have any fun. And so my plan was basically I was going to accept Christ like on my deathbed. That was my plan. Uh, Maybe when I'm old and close to death, then I'll cry out to God. But right now, I just want to have fun. And I had this view of God that God was a killjoy. The next one, maybe you can relate to this one, is that God is an absentee landlord. Meaning he can't take care of me. Now, any of you who have rented a property where the owner, they live out of town or live out of state, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When something breaks and you try to get a hold of the owner, they're just unavailable. And so nothing ever gets fixed. Now, many of you uh, are very aware of the tragic shooting last week in San Bernardino. And uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the very next day, on the cover of the New York Daily News, they came out with this headline. God isn't fixing this. And it kind of captures the heart of this unrealistic view of God that somehow God exists. He's like this absentee landlord. He, like he created everything, but then he kind of took off and he's like a million miles away out there somewhere, but he's basically not showing up to fix the problems in the world. But more personally, God's not fixing my stuff. It's a view that God's an absentee landlord. Or what about this next one? Some of you, as you sit here today, this is kind of your view of God. That God is a warden. Like a prison warden. Like he exists to punish me. And this unrealistic view goes like this. That that God's up in heaven. And like he's watching me. Like he's watching me like a hawk. And he's just waiting for me to step out of line. Because he's got this bag of lightning bolts. And he's just waiting to zap me. Now, most of you wouldn't like verbally say that but here's the deal you feel kind of guilty because you know you've done some bad things and then when things go wrong in your life your car breaks down your kid gets sick you can't find your keys whatever it's like people actually say oh my gosh god must be punishing me because your view of god god's this prison warden or what about this next one would you write this one down Maybe, you don't, maybe this is your view of God. You don't even realize it. But some of you see God as an abusive parent. There are so many people who grew up like me with a dad who's neglected them or parents who didn't care for them or worse, abused them. And so when people hear the phrase that God is your heavenly father, they subconsciously have this transference thing going on and they, they transfer on, onto God the same qualities of their physical father. And so we see people all the time who wrestle with abandonment issues and they struggle with trusting God spiritually because they subconsciously think that God is like their physical parents. And then the next one is uh, this view that God is kind of like 
a puppet master. Like God is up in heaven and he has like seven billion fingers and strings attached to every single one of us and everything that happens to everybody and all the things that happen in life, God is orchestrating that. God is the puppet master who makes everything happen. And that's when you hear people stay, say stuff like even like in the midst of tragedy. And I think it's really because when, when really bad things happen, a lot of times people don't know what to say. So you hear especially spiritual Christians say stuff like this. Well, you know, it, 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 it just, it must have been God's will. It must have been God's will. Friends, this is, this is really bad because it puts God in a really bad light because it makes God responsible for things like accidents and tsunamis and fires and, and cancer. And I want you to hear me now. I want, I want you to hear this very clearly. Not everything that happens in the world is God's will. Not everything that happens is God's will. Friends, we live in a fallen world where we have to wrestle with the reality of evil and sin. You know, I recently read a verse in my devotionals from Proverbs 19.3 that says this. It's on the screen behind me. Proverbs 19.3 says, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then what? They're mad at God. And why is it, guys, that we're so quick to take all the credit for the good stuff in our lives and then blame God for the bad? Is that realistic? Can I tell you loud and clear this morning, God did not make you to be a puppet. He made you to be a person. He made you to be a person who's made in his image, made to be free, where you're free to choose to love and trust and follow him or free to reject him. You're not a puppet. You're a person made in his image. But that leads us to the last unrealistic view. And I think it's the most common in our culture today. And it's this one. God is made in my image. That God is made in my image. Now, no one would come out and say that, right? That's blasphemy. Who, who would dare to say something like that? But, but hang with me here. Let me explain what I'm getting at. Emil Durkheim, who's known as the father of sociology, he wrote a book called The Elementary Forms of Religious Life. And in this book, Emil Durkheim, he tried to understand how does a culture, how does a society de- develop its faith, its belief in God. And so what he did is he studied a primitive indigenous tribe in the outback of Australia. And he noticed the following process took place. First, the tribe began to identify certain desirable traits that they wanted their children to possess. And he called these traits dominant cultural values. Now, these dominant cultural values, they came to be symbolized in certain animals. And according to Durkheim, almost subconsciously, we identify certain social traits with certain animals we see. And you all understand that as you sit here today. We, we, we understand because we've done some of that ourselves. Like, say, the value of strength. We'll say, hey, that guy there, he's as strong as an ox. Or the, straight of, or, the, or the value of wisdom. We'll say, man, that lady, she's as wise as an owl or sly as a fox. Well, he noticed in these tribes that they were attaching the values to the animals. 
And when an animal utilized, uh, when an animal came to symbolize a trait that they valued, what the sociologists call it is they call it a totem. And you all know that word, right? Because you've all heard the phrase a totem pole, right? Well, that's where the word totem pole came from. Used when, when animals symbolize a trait that a tribe values. Now, this totem or the animal that symbolizes the tribe's value, what happens was over time, pretty soon they be- began to see this animal possessing like spiritual powers that somehow this animal had the ability to pass on this trait to themselves or their children. And so slowly over time, they take these traits that they value, they put them on the animal, then they believe the animal had special powers that pass on the traits back to them. And then over time, they began to worship the animal. Now, Durkheim's final conclusion in all of this, now here's the point. Durkheim asked, if the tribe is worshiping an animal, which is nothing more than a symbolic representation of its own collective values, when the tribe worships the animal, what is the tribe really worshiping? They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping themselves. Their their God is themselves. They're making God in their own image instead of worshiping the one true God for who he really is. Now, friends, listen to me. It's one thing for a primitive tribe to do that in the outback of Australia. But can I tell you, the very same thing happens right here in the good old U.S. of A., especially at Christmas time. Can I tell you, this this is so key. Many times we do that with Jesus. We turn Jesus into a modern-day totem, and instead of worshiping Jesus for who he really is, Emmanuel, God with us, we turn Jesus into what we want him to be. Instead of worshiping Jesus as our Savior and King, the living God who made us in his image, we make Jesus in our image. And I want to tell you that for most What Christmas has become for most people in our culture is an all-out time where we end up worshiping ourselves. We end up worshiping ourselves. In fact, I want you to see it so clearly that it's unmistakable. I want you to watch this clip from a popular movie, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Take a look. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And, of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone-cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always Mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? 
I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Your tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Well, friends, I wanted you to see that clip, not just because it's funny, but you see, are they worshiping the real Jesus? They've turned Jesus in their own image. You know, what, what are they worshiping? They're worshiping, you know, winning and, and money and the always delicious Taco Bell, right? <laughs> Can I tell you this morning, Jesus didn't come to be your baby buddy or your protecting ninja or the lead s- singer in the Leonard Skinner Angel Band. <laughs> and I want to tell you, Jesus is not a genie. He's not a killjoy. He's not an absentee landlord or a warden or an abusive parent. And he's not made in your image. In fact, I want you to see what Isaiah 55, 8, where God tells us very clearly when he says these words, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Can I tell you, this is who God is. God's thoughts, his wills, his ways are so much higher, so much bigger, so much better than anything we can come up with on our own. In fact, I'm of the opinion this morning that many people who have rejected God have not rejected the one true God, but they've kind of rejected this unrealistic view of God, this mistaken identity, if you will, of who God really is. Because I believe that when people come to understand what God is really like, they're less likely to reject him and more likely to, to love him back. See, when you base your expectations on who God really is, not only will you have realistic expectations, you're going to have great expectations. Because, friends, we have a great God. Man, I love on your outline, I love how Psalm 145, 3 through 6 says these words. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor. Your wonderful miracles, your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Well, friends, that's why I'm here this morning. That's why I'm standing in front of you this morning to declare that we have a great and awesome God. And he is amazing. He is our wonderful counselor our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. He is the loving God who's so great and gracious and glorious that he is worthy. 
He is worthy regardless of the circumstances of your life. He is worthy of your love and devotion and commitment. In fact, I want to tell you, if you will build your life on real expectations of the real God, you'll not be disappointed. I love what Romans, on the back of your outline, what Romans 5, 5 says, and says this, and this hope, like when you put your hope and faith and trust in God, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Oh, friends, this is, this is so good. Would you underline the phrase, this hope will not lead to disappointment. Because when you have realistic expectations of God, you will not be disappointed by God. You'll be delighted by God. And can I tell you, this is so key. Here's a good question. How do you know if your expectation of God is realistic or not? How can you have confidence that you have realistic expectations of God? Well, friends, you can be confident that your expectations are realistic if you base those expectations on what God really said about himself in his word, the Bible. That's why God gave you the Bible, his love letter to you and me. God wants you to have clarity and understand who he is, what he's like, what he said. In fact, there on your outline... I just shared some realistic expectations that you can have of God when you give him your heart and put your faith and trust in him. These are things God actually said in his word, the Bible, that you can count on. They're realistic expectations. And I hope you'll do your own little personal Bible study this week, that you'll read each and every one of these verses because they're like promises of God given to you and to me. And so here's some realistic expectations when I put my hope in God. I can expect God's unconditional love, forgiveness of my sins, his presence in my problems, his acceptance, his peace to guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus, his wisdom to lead my life, his provision of my needs, him helping me fulfill his purpose, his help and support in times of need, and most importantly, because of Christmas, his gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are realistic expectations. Now, as you sit here this morning, if I could ask you, like, when you think of God, like, what do you look for in a God? What do you want from God? Like, if you went and did an interview on the street, and yes, people, when you think of God, when you come to him, what are your basic expectations of him? Do you know across the board, the two most common expectations, regardless of nationality, regardless of religious background, across the board, the two most common expectations of God, and I, I hope you'll write these down, are basically, you know, and it's true for you and for me, it's protection and blessing. Protection and blessing. Most people, if you bottom lined it, you say, hey, what do you look for in a God? They'll tell you, man, I want God to protect me and my family from all the bad stuff. And then on a positive side, people say, I want God to bless me. I want God to make me happy and, and for God to prosper, prosper me and make me healthy, wealthy and wise. If God would just protect me and bless me, man, that would be awesome. And with the time remaining in my message, I, I just want to talk very quickly about these two basic expectations of protection and blessing. 
So the first one, let's talk about this expectation of protection. Would you write this down? I can't or I cannot expect God to shield me from difficulties. Like to protect me from all of life's pain and problems. I can't expect God to shield me from difficulties. But I can expect God to be faithful to his word. See, it's so easy to get this idea that, hey, if I just give my life to God, say a prayer and follow him, that all my problems will magically melt away and nothing bad will happen to me. You know, a while ago, I was talking to a lady and she said, hey, Pastor Paul, man, I don't know what's going on, man. I I gave my heart to God. I started reading my Bible and coming to church, but I'm still having all these problems. And then here's her question. What good is it to have God in your life if I keep having all these problems? Man, even if you've never verbalized that question, some of you have asked that question in your head, in your heart. What good is it having God in my life if I keep having all these problems? But friends, do you hear the expectation in that? It's so subtle. It's almost like, hey, God, I came through for you. Hey, God, I scratched your back. God, it's kind of this expectation like, God, you owe me. You owe me. And friends, can I tell you very clearly, God never said, come follow me and your life will be a cakewalk marked by rainbows and puppies. (laughs) God never said, hey, come give me all your problems and they'll magically disappear and the rest of your life will be magically delicious. See, God never said that. God never said that, hey, just give me your faith and your trust and I will be on guard 24-7 to make sure you never get sick or have an accident or I'll pull you out of every painful problem. God never said that. That's why it's so essential that your expectations of God are based on his word and what he actually said. Friends, when God gives you his word because he is faithful, and you can count on it. You can bet your life on it. God, you can count on God's word. He is faithful to his promises, but it's unrealistic of you to expect him for God to do something that he never said he would. Can can I explain it this way? Say, say we made an arrangement and I say, hey, Pastor Paul, can we meet? I want to talk. I just want to talk about a couple problems I'm having. Hey, Pastor Paul, would you meet me tomorrow morning at Starbucks at 830? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to meet and talk with you. Let's meet tomorrow morning, Starbucks, 830. I'll be there. You have every right to expect me to show up at Starbucks at 830. But say tomorrow morning at 830, I walk into Starbucks to meet you. And you're waiting for me, and you are pissed. And I walk out and say, hey, how's it going? Pastor Paul, I am so mad at you. I've been here since 7 o'clock this morning. And if you were a good pastor, and if you really cared about me, you would know that I couldn't even sleep last night. I've been so worried about my problems. And if you were really a good pastor, you would have known that I came in here early, and I've been waiting for you since 7 o'clock. Now, what do you think I'd say to that? I'd say, whoa, 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 time out. I never said I'd meet you here at 7. I said I'd meet you at 8.30, and it's 8.30. Here I am. But friends, can I tell you, we do that to God all the time. Well, if you were a good God, and if you really cared about me, you woulda, shoulda, coulda. 
but we expect God to do things that he never said he would. This is so key, friends. You see, realistic expectations, God, are based on what he said in his word, not on your wants, your opinions, or what you hope that he should be or do. What what I'll tell you very clearly is God never said life would be easy. In fact, God promised the opposite. God never said that as believers that we'd be exempt from difficulties in this life. Far from it. Here's what God actually said. Check out the words of Jesus in John 16, 33 on your outline. Here's what Jesus said. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many what? Trials and sorrows. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, underline that phrase, on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Friends, we live in a fallen world where people are free not only to follow God, but to reject and rebel against him. And you can just expect in your life, you're going to have some trials. You're going to have some sorrows. It's just a real part of life on this planet. It's not realistic to expect God to exclude you from life's difficulties. But friends, you can trust him to be faithful to his word. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says this. Understand, therefore, that the Lord God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations. Underline that phrase. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant who keeps his promises, who keeps his word. See, I can't expect him to shield me from all difficulties, but I can expect him to be with me in the difficulty. He said that. I can expect him to give me his peace to guard my heart and mind. He said that. I can expect him to give me provision to meet my needs. He said that. I can expect God to give me courage to face my problems head on because he said that. See, this is, this is so key. Now, so that's on the, you know, that is on the protection side. Let's talk about the blessing side. Would you write this down? This is also very realistic. I can't or I cannot expect God to bless my agenda. But I can't expect God to bless my obedience. Sometimes we get this whole God thing backwards. And many times, let's just, Let's just call it what it is. Many times we don't want God in our lives. We want a spiritual good luck charm. We want a cosmic vending machine. Drop in the spiritual coinage, press the button, say a few prayers, and out pops what I want. See, we want the genie God, the give me God. But here's the deal, friends. I think the real reason many of us want God to bless our agenda, because when it comes down to it, It's really an issue of trust. It's really an issue of who is going to be in control of your life. And some of you, you're hanging on so tightly because you think that you know better than God what is best for your life. So it's like, hey, God, I know what I want and what I need to do. So God, here's my plans and you need to bless them. But friends, you know, when you do that, you're living backwards. The God who made you in his image, the God who's your loving father, who has good plans for your life. 
He knows so much better than you. And the real way to live your life is say, God, here's my life. God, lead me, show me what you want me to do, what your purpose, what your plan is. Instead of, hey, God, would you bless and build my kingdom? Say, God, I want to exist to bless and build your kingdom. You know, that's why Jesus came. That's why we have Christmas. You know, Jesus came so that we could have a real and realistic relationship with God. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, you all know the prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what's the next phrase? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, it's realistic when you live your life that way. When you orient your life to honor and obey God, and just on a side note, that's how you show that you really love God, right? Not that you show up for a service and sing some songs and put some money in a plate and try to be good. Here's what Jesus said about what true love for God looks like. In John 14, 21, Jesus said these words, those who accept my commandments and what? Obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Here's the promise. Underline this phrase. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Here's the promise. When you show your love for God by obeying his word and his ways, and God loves it. He blesses it. In fact, I want to end my message with just one last verse. Let's kind of like bring it down and like, Bring it into focus for us. Deuteronomy 30, 15 and 16. Here's what God's saying. Today I'm giving you the choice between good and evil, between life and death. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I've given you today, if you love him, obey him. Then you will prosper. The Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to occupy. Now, underline this phrase. If you love him, obey him. Then you will prosper. The Lord your God will bless you. Now think about it. Realistic expectations of God. Like what do you do with a message like this? Because some of you, as you're sitting here today, some of you, you're hurting and you're disappointed in life. You're disappointed in your work or your marriage or your family, your finances. And the underlying thread in all of this is some of you, as you sit here today, the truth is you're frustrated with God because you've had like these expectations and God has not come through for you. What do you do with that? Well, there's a spiritual principle here that's related to receiving the blessing of God on your life. Maybe on the bottom of your outline, you might want to write this down. Here's the principle. Whatever you want God to bless, give him first place in it. Whatever you want God to bless, give him first place. So, for example, you want God to bless your marriage and family, give him first place. What does that mean? That means, God, I'm going to seek you in your word. I'm going to learn everything you teach about how to build a marriage and have a good family. I'm going to listen to your word. And when you show me something from your word or what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to obey it. And I'm going to to build my family on the rock of your word. And even when the storms come and hit, I'm going to try. And then here's what God will do. God says, if you do this, then I will do this. 
and he'll bless your marriage and bless your family. Some of you in your career, you're frustrated and you feel stuck and overwhelmed. Give God first place in your job and career. What does that mean? That means, okay, God, I'm going to study everything in your word about what it means to be a good worker or a good employee or a good boss or whatever. And I'm going to learn that and I'm going to do my best to let you be my boss and to work for you and your glory. And friends, I, I'll tell you this. God says, if you'll do, you want bless, then he'll bless your career and your work. You want God to bless your finances? Give him first place. You want God to bless your relationships? Give him first place. Whatever you want God to bless, give him first place. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now as we pray together. Would you pray with me now? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. You guys have done such a great job listening to this message. Now, now you've done great. Taking a deep breath, you made it. But I want you to think for a second. Because maybe there's been a block in your relationship with God. Because you've been relating to him unrealistically. Treating him like a genie or a killjoy or an absentee landlord. Or maybe you've been transferring some family issues onto your heavenly father that's really blocked you from trusting him. In your heart right now, would you just open up and tell God, say, God, I want a real relationship with you based on who you really are. And God, I know you won't shield me from all the pains and problems of life, but I want you to be with me. I want you to help me as I reach out and trust and follow you, and I know that my hope in you will not lead to disappointment. Or maybe you're saying, God, I I want your blessing, but I've been trying to tell you what to bless instead of saying, God, make me a blessing to you and to this world and help me do my life your way. Would you say, God, I want today to be a fresh start with you, and I want you to have first place in my heart in my home, in my marriage, in my work, in whatever area of your life, God, I give you first place. God, you show me, and my answer in advance is yes. And then some of you here today, you've been wrestling with Jesus, and you know he's been knocking at the door of your heart, and he wants to come in. Would you make today your yes to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins, And make me a new person as I put my faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.